When I was little, I remember my parents making big, big efforts to see to it that Christmas was a nice time. And I've tried to do the same thing with, with eight kids. That's, uh, it, it's a, almost a guaranteed party, of course, and, and uh, it takes a lot of effort to make that a special time. You know, before Hope was born, I had three girls, and, and they were little, and Lois always said, you know, I'd really like to have a... Uh, I was one when I was a girl, I wanted a, a big life-size... Uh, like playhouse, like that I could go in myself. And I've always thought it would be nice if the, the girls could have one. And I, I don't build things. Everything I build looks like a peach crate when I'm done, no matter how hard I tried. And, and uh, so I knew I couldn't really build something like that, but we were going through a discount store at Christmas, and we saw a, a big playhouse on sale. And when we thought if we worked at it, we could afford to buy this playhouse. And we thought, this would be good. We'll buy this. It'll be, it'll be one gift for all the girls. It'll work out great. We'll just buy that one thing, and, and we, won't, we won't try to wrap it. I'll just stay up all night on Christmas Eve and put it together. And then when they come down the stairs, they're just going to be thrilled with this big playhouse. And, and I thought it was a great plan. So um, anything that involves me putting stuff together, though, is like not a good idea. And, and uh, so I put this thing together. I got it together. And when I got it all done, I looked at it, and I, and I knew immediately we were in, in big trouble because it was... Um, it wasn't as big as it looked like it was on the box. It's just on the box, it really looked like the Taj Mahal. And, and uh, in, in, in reality, it looked a little uh, smaller. And um, so I got to look at that. I was, there it was, the Christmas tree, and there's this little squirrely uh, playhouse that you're supposed to be able to go in. And I was thinking about my three girls upstairs, and I thought, I am in serious trouble. And so when I got lost, and it's like 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm like, come out here, and I want you to look at this and tell me what you think if you're thinking what I'm thinking. And so she comes out and she goes, that's not going to work. And I'm like, I know. What are we going to do? It was like for Hannah and for Heidi, it was fine. But Holly was older, you know, and, and we were thinking, this, this isn't going to work. And I remember looking at her thinking, nothing's open. And you don't want to give kids excuses on Christmas morning. I mean, I, as a matter of fact, what would happen, they were all upstairs in the bedroom and we were downstairs and we said on Christmas morning, um, you stay upstairs until we, until we get up. And, of course, if you're staying up trying to put things together until 3 o'clock in the morning, you're not going to get up early in the morning. So we're, we're up there. We're in bed, and they're upstairs. And these are apocryphal legends now. We hear about them through the years. It's like the kids would do all kinds of things to wake us up. Like they would, they would throw chairs on the floor or down the stairs or things and, and, uh, to try to wake us up. And anyway, so... Lois and I were like, there's nothing we, I don't know what to do. Then I, I had this brilliant idea. I decided that I would write Holly a, a cold check. We'd spent all of our money, so we didn't have any money. But she didn't know that. And I figured by the time that she could cash the check, I could get the money in the bank. Now, this is probably not something I should confess in church just before communion. But I'm just telling you that I wrote her a cold check for $100. It was just, I thought that would be an impressive amount of money for a little girl. We just got the checkbook out a check for a hundred dollars and uh so we let them all kind of look at all their stuff and they were happy and she was really nice about it and then i said on holly you know you're old, you're bigger and you're older and we got something for you and she was happy with that i'm telling you it's not easy to make christmas a big deal is it it's not easy and if you're like i am you kind of feel like sometimes it's i mean i'm not i'm never gonna let anything take the joy of christmas out of my heart but there are times when there's just a lot of pressure and it's just a lot of work I want my kids to have happy Christmases. That's just the way it is. And this is the fourth time that I have stood here on this Sunday and been with you 
as your pastor, as one of your pastors. Um, it was on December 2nd, 2007, that we opened the Christmas season here together for the first time with communion, just like we're doing right now. And uh, so this is our fourth time. This is the, I've been through three full years, and they've been some of the three happiest years of my life. And uh, hope they haven't been <laughs> too hard on you. And we're starting into a fourth, and I'm not going anywhere, so you want to get used to that. And, and, and more importantly, though, I want you to be, I want you to have good Christmases. I want, I want, I'm one of your pastors, and I want to see to it that for whatever I'm able to do, I'm, I help you have a good Christmas season. And I was thinking about that this week and praying about that, and this is what came to my heart, and it's what I want to talk about today as we approach the Lord's table. And then for the next few weeks, as we approach the Christmas day, we're in this wonderful Christmas season, and this is what I believe the Lord put on my heart, and that is, I wish for you a holy Christmas. I wish for you a sanctified Christmas, a Christmas that is more than what the average person enjoys, but a Christmas that includes a lot of that, but a holiness, a a, a blessing, a, a, a sanctity, a Christmas that's just richer and it's deeper and it's more satisfying and it's more meaningful because it's more holy, a holy Christmas. And to that end, I want to just share today as we approach the Lord's table and then in the next weeks, some things that the Lord has put upon my heart that the scriptures teach that will help make your Christmas holy, sanctified Christmas. So how to have a sanctified Christmas. And so today, I want to give you a little symbol of the Lord Jesus. Whenever we approach the Lord's table, the older I get, the more I like communion. And the more I like communion Sundays, because it really is so beautifully symbolic of what we're all about and what we've sung about repeatedly here today. And that is, did you notice that if Pastor Pine, if Satan was trying to mess up the song, it didn't work. Because after the song quit, the next song was, all is well. Did you like plan that or was that, no, you didn't. <laughs> I just felt like in my soul, I'm like, yeah. He, he, he can try, but he is not going to mess us up. He is not going to take our song. He is not going to take that truth out of our souls. So as we approach the Lord's table every time that we have communion, as a pastor, I, I smile in my heart because I think, well, what I'm going to get to do today is I get to, I get to go anywhere in the Bible that I feel the Lord has led me to go and find some beautiful picture of Jesus, take the people by the hand, and lead them to the cross and have a beautiful picture of Jesus. And that's good for you good for me. And I want to do that today, and you'll see how this works when you put it together with Christmas. I was out in the sandwich shop last night, grab a sandwich, and I saw this guy. I looked at him and said, I want to talk to him. So I just walked up to him. I got my sandwich, and everything was real quiet. Everybody was looking. I don't know why everybody was looking at me. Everybody was real quiet. They were looking at me. I was like, what? You know, it just seemed like everybody was real quiet. But the older I get, the bolder I am. I just want to say to this guy. So I just walked over to him, and I said, this is the truth. I go, are you sanctified? <laughs> I did. I did. I said to the guy, are you sanctified? I had a hunch he was. And he goes, yes, I am. And, well, the reason I said I'm, I'm an idiot, but I'm, I think I mentioned that before. But, but it's not really what, what happened was I saw the guy had a, a, a sweatshirt on that said Olivet. And I knew that Olivet was a Nazarene university. And the people that know the inside language of Nazarene people, would, would sanctification would be a big deal to them. And that if he was sanctified, that he would tell me. Anyway, well, there's more than one Olivet College. Did you know that? <laughs> and he didn't know anything about the Nazarene one. But he must have been a, 
he must have been a Christian because he just right away said yes. His wife was just nodding and smiling. He didn't shoot me. He didn't beat me up. It was just a really, it was a, a good thing. Um, are you sanctified? Are you? Is your Christmas sanctified? Is it holy? And, and I want to talk to this one thing that when I would take the two things, I want to give you a picture of Jesus, and I also want to give you a practical tip, if you will, on how to make your Christmas holy, and they're the, they're the same thing. They're the same thing. The scriptures talk about this in the book of Hebrews. And if you take your Bible, and just for a moment, I, I'm just going to give you a, a brief and direct talk here today, heart-to-heart, pastor-to-people, and I want to show you something about Jesus that's so beautiful. It's just so compelling and so wonderful. Something true about Jesus that's so wonderful. And, that is, and it is this. In Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4, you have in, in the book of Hebrews just a, a rich and beautiful letter to people with the Jewish background who are kind of laboring to believe that Jesus is everything that he claimed to be. And if after their labor to believe, they end up believing, the scriptures here say they enter into a special kind of rest for their souls. Um, in the Old Testament, Israel's, uh, the life of Israel was filled with all kinds of symbols. It was filled with all kinds of dramas and symbols and shadows and type types, if you will, foreshadowings of truth. We know that Jesus Christ would come. And that all the songs that we sang today about his death for sin and, and all that Jesus is, all those things were, po- the, most of those things had Old Testament symbols that pointed to them, almost like to stir up within people a kind of a holy anticipation that they would be looking forward to this. And so this, their, their social and religious life were just laden with, their, the civil life, they were just filled and laden with all kinds of symbolic things. And one of the most beautiful symbols there that was given to them even as a law was a symbol that was a law that they called the Sabbath or Sabbaths. There were a number of them. But there was a, a sixth of the week, the Saturday, the, 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 the day that would be set apart. Of course, it wasn't Saturday for them. That's, our, that's the way we refer to it. But a day that would be set apart. It would be sanctified. In the Old Testament, this was a command with promises attached. I'm going to read to you from Isaiah 58. And this is um, the prophet talking to the people about dishonoring the Sabbath. If they keep the Sabbath, a day holy to the Lord, then the blessing of the Lord would be upon them. Because they don't keep the Sabbath, and by the way, one of the reasons they're delivered from Egyptian bondage is so that they have the freedom to go and worship the Lord and have Sabbaths and obey the things that the Bible says so they can enjoy that. So they're delivered from bondage, which I guess would be the ultimate labor and not being in rest. They're delivered from that to go out and to have this rest. And yet when they go into the land, which is uh, in the book of Hebrews, there's going to be a picture of the rest that's given. When they get into the land, they don't obey the Lord. And so the Lord says, okay, if you're not going to obey me, then, and you're not going to keep my Sabbaths, then I'm going to have you taken back into bondage, in, this time in Babylon, and you're going to stay there until I've been given my Sabbaths back as a symbol to you that you don't mess with me and my symbols. And because the symbols are important, because they're pointing to something that's ultimate, they're pointing to Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that in a moment. But listen to Isaiah 58 as an example. If you, if you turn your foot away, this is verse 13 of Isaiah 
58, if you turn your foot away from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and you shall honor Him not doing your own ways, or finding your own pleasure, or speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of your father Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken this. So you have this, and it's always this way when it talks about the Sabbath in the Bible, you have a kind of a promise and a warning woven together. If you will understand this idea of Sabbath, of rest, you obey, in the Old Testament economy and to Israel, there was a, there was a command to obey that particular thing. And, and he said, if you obey that, then I'm going to bless you and cause you to walk on the high places of the earth and feed you the heritage of your father Jacob, the mouth of the Lord has spoken this. This is a big promise. But if you violate it, things are not going to go well with you, is what he's saying. In the Old Testament life of Israel, this is a big picture. And it's still true today that our bodies, physically, we long for rest, don't we? Amen? Some of you are resting right now. I'm just kidding. I'm not, I'm not actually seeing anybody, but it's not infrequent for people to just rest while I'm talking. I'm like, well, I'm glad I've been a blessing to you. Anyway, <laughs> Doing my best. But our bodies long for rest. And you're like, maybe this afternoon you want some of that. Uh, and, and, and life is it's hard on us. And, and, and the, according to the Scripture, we're made. And you know the whole matter of God resting, God didn't need to rest because he's untiring. Right? But when he created the world, he rested for a day. What was that about? I don't understand how that could have meant anything but an example to us. Because he didn't need to rest. He wasn't tired. We get tired. He never tires. And then it was woven into the, the national laws of Israel. And then it was abrogated or removed in Christ. And we'll explain that in a little bit. And yet here we have this um, truth that we, that we agree. We, our bodies crave rest. And our souls, our spirits long for spiritual rest. I heard once of a group that were on the Oregon Trail, a group of families together. And they would be going out through the western United States trying to get to the west coast and they had a disagreement. At first, they would stop on the Lord's Day, and they would observe a day of worship and rest, and they wouldn't travel on that day. But as the difficulties mounted up, they began to have a disagreement. And some of the people said, you know what, if we don't keep going, we're going to be in trouble, and we're not going to make it over the mountain passes by winter time, and so we're going to have to go every day. And, of course, you probably know how the story went. The group divided. And the group that traveled every day arrived after the group that observed the Lord's Day. It's kind of an illustration of the way that God made us. He made us to accomplish more when we do things His way. Just a natural thing. Our bodies crave rest. It's a part of a sacred rhythm of labor and rest that all of us kind of know intuitively in our hearts. We know that that's right. But there's something that's more. Our souls crave rest. And our souls are not at rest. And you know why? Because, they're to- because they're, there's a turmoil in our souls and our spirits continuously because of sin. And that's just, we know that's true. I'm telling you something you already know today. I'm reminding you of something that you already know. As a matter of fact, here in Isaiah 57, it says this, The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace. There's no rest, says God, for the wicked. And you and I know that's true. Before Christ came into our life, we had no rest in our souls. We had no rest in our spirits. We had no 
sense of peace with God. When Jesus comes in and we realize that He took our sin burden off of us onto Him and placed His righteousness onto our account, then for the first time in our lives, we had spiritual rest because our sins were on Christ and His righteousness is on us. And for the first time in our life, we had spiritual rest. And I know if you're a believer, that's your experience. That's, the tr- that's true about you. Jesus alone could purchase that. And this is what we see in Hebrews. In the Hebrews, the, 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 the argument then was to people who would be tempted to kind of like come up to the threshold of faith and then look and see what is involved and then kind of walk away from it. And so there were these warnings in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews in chapter 3 and 4, it would be good for you to rest and have a little nap this afternoon. And then when you wake up, open your Bible to Hebrews 3 and 4 and, and read this just slowly and just kind of enjoy this. To, to read all of it, all of really Hebrews uh, ch- chapter 3 and 4. But I want you to notice some things as we go to the communion table. Um, verse 7 of chapter 3, just reading, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts, as in a rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. It's like I wanted them to be at peace, physically and spiritually, in their bodies and souls, but they hardened their hearts, and so they didn't believe, and so they didn't have rest because they didn't believe. Verse 12, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God. Get it? Think about this. Believe and have rest. Don't believe, never have rest. Never have rest. Verse 13, But exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Jump forward in, in verse 18. is talking here about the same matter. Verse 18, To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Get it? Believe and you find rest for your soul. Refuse to believe because your heart is hard and you just refuse to believe. And the wicked are like the troubled sea whose waters cast up mire and dirt. They cannot rest. There's no rest, says God, for the wicked, people outside of Christ. Verse chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith. Get it? You hear the gospel, the truth of Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection is all you need to know in order to have rest for your soul. But because it's not mixed with faith and your heart is hard and you don't believe, you don't get the rest. It's not yours. For we who have believed do enter that rest. Believe and rest. Get it? It's very clear, isn't it? You believe, rest for your soul. How beautiful is that? Your body knows you need rest. Your spirit craves peace and rest. And Jesus knew that. Stirred up that longing for rest within you. He himself, way back in creation and then through Israel, created this beautiful picture of Sabbath rest. 
And then he came himself as the fulfillment of the Sabbath rest. And there in the future is a time, a time yet remaining when we enter into absolute and complete and total, the glorified state, we're in rest with the Lord. And therefore, verse 7 says, don't harden your hearts. And verse 9 says, there remains therefore a rest, but it's for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works. Isn't that interesting? Get it? As long as you're doing religion, you're not at rest, right? As long as you're just like working to overcome your sin and, and working to be good enough, and then you don't get it. And you haven't entered into rest. You have a turmoil in your soul. Your self-righteousness is not a restful state. But when you believe and your faith is fully, and you know this, your faith is fully in Christ alone for your salvation, then you, you pass from death into life and, and you, you pass from turmoil to peace and you actually have rest for your soul for the very first time. And some of you here this morning, it, it, the reason that you have that turmoil in your soul is because you're still trying to work it out on your own. I, uh, I, don't, know how, I don't know how to illustrate this, but I was talking with one of the elderly ladies in our church here and uh, it was a Wednesday night. This dear, precious lady has come here. She's very up in years. And she has come here for many, many years. And she's taught children. And she's taught, I mean, she's taught probably generations of children. And she's here on a Wednesday night. And I think maybe even that night had a walker. And it was cold. And it was late. And a lot of younger people would have said, are you kidding? I'm not going to church on Wednesday night. It's cold out there. Here's this elderly lady. She's waiting to get picked up by her husband. And, and, and as a matter of fact, I think we had walked outside then. And you know what she said to me? She said something that I'm getting old enough to relate to. She said, I'm just looking forward to going home and getting in my bed and pulling my quilt up underneath of my chin. I'm going, amen, sister. That's my favorite part of the day. I'm, how many of you kind of get a witness on that? You agree with me on this? Yeah. All the old people are like, yeah, that's my favorite part of the day too. Let's go home, pull the quilt up underneath my chin, and drift off to blissful sleep and when you get old and smart you'll think the same way be running around carrying on you just want to go home get to bed go to sleep and stay there for a long time i like to get up at five o'clock in the morning especially on sunday i don't know what happened to my my clock but i woke up at 7 45 that's why this message is so lame right now it's just <laughs> i got extra rest the lord must have wanted me to have <laughs> extra rest Lois is taking pictures up at Camp Barakel. She's uh, did a wedding up there, and, and it's an unusual wedding up at Camp Barakel. And so she, Takali, so as a worker, along with her, and they went up. And I was staying in touch with them on the phone, making sure everything was okay. And I had a beautiful talk with her just before I went to sleep last night. She said, "All the way up here, I kept thinking how cold it is and how little I want to sleep overnight at a camp. You know, it's just going to be bad." It's going to be drafty, and it's going to be cold, and it's going to be a camp. She says, when I got here, she said, my name was on the speaker's quarters. Now, I've been there many, many times. I've spoken up for like 12 years and a number of weeks a, a summer. It's one of my favorite places in the world, the speaker's quarters. It's, it's, it's kind of old-fashioned, knotty pine paneling and... It's private and nice and warm. They had the heat turned up for her and the quilt turned back. So when she got there, her name was on the door and the heat was up and the quilt was turned back. So she's like, I am. It's like, man, that's just something. 
to enjoy. That thick quilt on a cold winter night, and the heat turned up just right, and the security of that. I don't know if that's a good picture for you, but it is for me. One day, Jesus stepped out of the glory of heaven to take our sin upon himself. And they tortured Jesus, and he died by the plan that he had with God so that he could give us eternal and wonderful, peaceful, sweet rest for our souls that we so long. Don't you love him for that? Don't you thank him for that? Doesn't it make you want to praise him and bless him? We're going to distribute the elements of communion. These are another symbol. This is a symbol. These are symbols the Lord has given to the the New Testament church. And what he has done is he's given us these symbols by his own by his own ordinance, his command. His, his, this is what he's told us to do. It's a delightful command, but a command nonetheless. This is what he asks us to do. And we, and we obey him. He said that frequently when his believers would gather, that he would have them take in hand these symbols of his body, which was broken, and his blood, which was shed. And this would be an ongoing ordinance. The baptism is something that we do one time after we're saved. Uh, there's a symbolism there of the, of, the, of the one-time nature of genuine salvation. And then the communion observance is something that happens over and over again. And I believe symbolic of the continual communion that we have with the Lord, the ongoing, how you maintain a fellowship, if you will, maintain relationship. And it's a reminder. To, so it is for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not for unbelievers, and we don't mean to make you uncomfortable here today, but if you have not yet fully placed your faith and trust in Christ as your Savior, then I just warn you, I, I, I would exhort you, labor to enter into rest, is the way Hebrews put it. See to it that you have entered into rest. But watch the communion elements as they go by today, and don't, don't take them. Because the Bible says if you are hypocritical like that and you, you take the bread and you, you drink the cup but you really don't honor the Lord that you bring judgment upon yourself. If you're a believer and yet you're not really in fellowship with the Lord and you know that, you're not walking in oneness of heart with the Lord and you intentionally have a, a, an area of disobedience in your life that you will not let go of, then I just this is a good time for you just in the time that we just kind of take our time and the deacons, they distribute the elements slowly and that's time for you to meditate and really just in that short period of time get yourself right with the Lord. Or you would say to the Lord, and this is, don't you think this is just important for all of us? Is there anybody who would be an exception that say in the last month, what, what is there that hopefully you haven't waited a month to take care of things that aren't right? Because the Bible says, for instance, about anger, don't let the sun go down upon your ass. Take care of things immediately. And, and remind yourself of the, the, the payment that Christ made, the blood of Christ that was shed for our sin, and, and go back and back to the cross. young man who's a fairly young Christian was just asking me, how do I deal you know, with my doubts? And I said, back to the cross all the time. Back to the cross. Remind yourself of the cross. Preach the gospel to yourself over and over again. And this, these symbols will help us. So the communion is open to those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's open to those who are, who are right with the Lord. There's another little uh, warning that we, we like to give here, and it's important, I think, and that is we have younger people here. And if you're, just a ch- if you're a child, if you're younger, and you haven't been instructed, it's probably best to wait until you've been instructed. Your parents are giving you the go-ahead because they know that you understand because it's a real serious thing. It would be better if you would just like honestly say, God, I love you, 
I want to do what's right. And then and he knows your heart. And when you have... Is, this is, I want to be gentle about this. Please don't be upset with me when I tell you this. I want to be gentle about this. But think about this real carefully. And it's something we don't always mention, but I want to mention it this morning. Again, if you say to the Lord, Lord, I love you. I know you died for me. I'm your child. And he says to you, then here's what I want you to do, and you don't do it. Then how can you come to the communion table and say, we're just like this, God? You can't, can you? You can't. So the communion table kind of puts that in our face, right? It kind of puts it in our heart. So I'm thinking for a lot of us, there's just that one thing that you need to obey the Lord in. And again, it may be baptism. Again, it may be some other area of obedience. This for baptism I mentioned because the Bible speaks of it so frequently, and I'm encouraged by so many of you who've come to me lately and said, I want to obey the Lord in this thing. But, but there, there are a hundred things, a thousand things it could be that God the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart about and says, this is what I want you to do. And you say to him, you're my Lord and you're my King, you're my God. What a, what a wonderful thing it would be if a group, a, it's really a huge group of hundreds of Christians like this, would all say yes to Jesus today. Yes, sir, whatever you want me to do, I'm on my way. And then you just go out from here and you just eagerly go to wherever that is and do whatever it is he told you to do. That's a beautiful program. And so these are the things that we should think about and many others. As the Spirit ministers to your heart, we'll pray together and we'll distribute the bread, hold it together, and we'll partake of it together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus, who is our Sabbath rest. Lord Jesus, you are our Sabbath rest, and we love you for that. Oh, Lord, it is true. The older we get in the Lord, the more we long for rest for our bodies and for our spirits. And the more precious it is to us to think that you are our rest. And we have entered into that rest, and yet there's a rest even to come one day. And uh, we're grateful for that. Help us to think rightly about that as we partake of these elements in Christ's name. I'm reading from the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians, For I received from the Lord that which also I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on this same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, as saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. I don't know what you were thinking about when they were passing out the elements of communion, but I have had a lifelong problem of a very active mind. My mind just wanders all over the place. And it's hard for me to sit still and to think one thing at a time. Um, so I don't know if you're like that or not. Um, but I just, some people would call that scatterbrained. I would like to think of it as creative. Um, I'm not sure what it is. But you get distracted, don't you? And that's the way I am. And what am I trying to tell you as a Christian? You already entered in the rest of Christ. Can I just give you this little... Pastoral, practical tip, advice for Christmas season. The way the guy created his universe, it would be like six parts of labor and one part of rest. 
He did it himself, even though he didn't need to. Six parts labor, one part rest. I, I don't know what your favorite cookie is. I, I don't know why I'm thinking today about oatmeal cookies with, with walnuts and, and raisins and cinnamon and stuff. I don't know what you put in those. Oatmeal, raisins, and walnuts for sure. But there's other secret ingredients like, I don't know if it's baking powder or baking soda or baking something is in there. Butter for sure. Am I right? You got flour. Did I get everything? Yeah. You fell into my trap, Jim. What if you made everything and you had everything there, but you didn't put sugar in them? They would not be good. They would be good for hockey pucks, but they wouldn't be good for cookies. They would be, because there's, a, there's just a, a piece of the recipe you left out. And, and can I suggest to you that your Christmas, it, to make Christmas holy requires labor, I think. It takes a lot of work to do what's going to happen in this, in this room for your Christmas and for the Christmas for the folk that you invite. Labor. I mean, I have seen the people of Evangel laboring, and that's good. It takes labor for you to earn the money that buy gifts and give kindness, gifts, expressions of your Christian love to other people. It just takes work. Ladies are going to work to make that pumpkin roll and that pumpkin. But let's not go. Let's just not go there right now. They're going to work for all of that stuff is going to be labor. And that's good. And a part of Christian faithfulness is just breaking a holy sweat. So by all means, we, we, we associate Christmas with bustle, Right. What would Christmas be like without bustle? So bustle, if you will. But don't forget that one part of that, you got six parts bustle <laughs> and one part rest, one part quiet, one part reading your Bible by the fire, one part taking a walk in your neighborhood and just quietly praying for your neighbors, one part sit down and take a breath. Think godly thoughts. Because rest is one way to make Christmas holy. It really is. It's not all rest, but it needs to be there. When I was uh, up in Flint, I ran the Crim race every year. It was a 10-mile distance race. And, and while I was running one year, I noticed this junior high girl that was running. She would dart out ahead of me. And I would think, I'm not going to let... Some little junior high girl finished this race ahead of me. So I would reel her in. And just then she would dart out ahead of me. And then and I noticed later in the race she would stop and walk. I'm like, I got to her, you know. I'm going to beat this girl because she's walking. And then I would be running along and she would pass me. And then I would, then she would stop and walk and then I would pass her. And then she would pass me. And I'm pretty sure she finished probably couple of light years ahead of me. I'm not really sure. She was using the Jeff Galloway. She'd been trained to use the Jeff Galloway running method where you walk at least, you know, a specific portion of the time. Not a, not a, that's kind of a biblical training method. That's what I'm saying. Don't just like keep the hammer down at Christmas time. If you want a sacred and, and a holy Christmas, then if you're a believer already and you've entered into rest in Christ, your soul is at rest, then then I want to suggest to you just as a pastor that you build in some sacred times where you're quiet. And if you today are an unbeliever, I hope you've gotten this already, but let me just read a couple warnings to you before we go home. Since we have this promise, the promise that remains of entering into rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. 
For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them because it wasn't mixed with faith. It's like they heard the message in their ears and their brain got it, but it never sunk down into their heart because they didn't believe it, and so they don't have rest for their souls. Verse 7 says, please don't harden your hearts. And verse 11 says, let us therefore be diligent to enter into rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Today, I was thinking of a Christmas song. You'll find it on page number 132. It's called Good Christian Men Rejoice, but we're going to invite the girls to sing with us as well. Good Christian men rejoice. Good Christian men and women rejoice. There's a little part in this that's over and over. Christ was born for this. Christ was born for this. And when you sing that, just remember, he was born so that you could tuck the quilt of his love under your chin and you, your soul could rest. And I trust your Christmas time has a little rest in it too. Let's stand together. We'll sing it all together.